In the face of the current atrocities perpetrated against the Ukrainian people by the government of Russia, we want to make you all aware of an opportunity to provide free therapy to those most impacted by the war in Ukraine. The organization called It's Complicated has created a platform for therapists from all around the world to offer their services for free. Particularly if you speak Ukrainian or Russian, please consider creating a profile at itscomplicated.life slash en slash Ukraine. It's Complicated is providing a secure online platform to conduct the sessions and will match people needing support with available therapists free of charge. Please consider creating a profile to provide free therapy to those impacted by the war. Go to itscomplicated.life slash en slash Ukraine. We want to give you an update about somatic integration and processing trainings coming up. SIP1 and SIP2 are both approved for 21 NBCC hours, and we have big news. They are also each approved for 10 hours of approved advanced credit through IMDRIA. So if you're working on your EMDR certification, SIP trainings can count towards your needed advanced training hours. We're so excited to be able to offer this to all of you. More exciting news is that we're offering SIP-1 for an Australian time zone. On July 22nd through the 24th, we will host a virtual training starting at 7 a.m. UTC plus 10. If you're in another time zone, you're welcome to attend this one as well. But we've had so many people from Australia reach out about SIP that we wanted to make it more accessible for all of you. We also have SIP-1 available in American time zones on June 23rd through the 25th, and again on October 20th through the 22nd. Go to our website for all this info and more at beyondhealingcenter.com or email us at trainings at beyondhealingcenter.com. Thanks so much. Welcome to the Evidence-Based Therapist, where we read so you don't have to. Here you'll find clinicians and researchers discussing cutting-edge research from the embodied relational sciences, explaining why and how people work together to find healing. Hey, welcome back to another week of Evidence-Based Therapist, where we read so you don't have to. It's Bridger and I. We're back in the studio for That's another right. week. Yeah. Anticipating what could be. Oh, and this will date the podcast of when we recorded. <laughs> Pot- potentially um, getting ready for a big snow slash ice storm. Oh, yes. As is winter in Missouri. That's right. Southern Missouri. <laughs> February. It's, it's just um, ice all the time. It feels ice. Like. Yeah. yeah. The promise of snow, though, which is rare. Yeah. I feel that yeah. ice is kind of like our winters, but there's a yeah. promise of snow. Yes. So that's interesting. It's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. There's some anticipatory networks firing in me for sure. Yeah. Both in the I hate ice and the I love snow. I'm, yes. And I'm an introvert. And so I'm oh, excited yeah. to be home. Yeah. If that happens. In. Yeah. If that happens. Hmm. Well, we're going <laughs> to go on to part two of our misunderstandings of memory reconsolidation yeah. article. Uh, which is we've mentioned last week is a very beefy, very beefy article. So we're taking these kind of three misconceptions at a time. Mm-hmm. Uh, today we're going to do four, five, and six. 
Yeah. So take it one at a time, just talk through them. Um, this would be a good time to note that if you haven't listened to the primer on memory reconsolidation or even the last episode where we spent probably the first 30 minutes giving kind of a, an overview of memory Mm -hmm. reconsolidation, um, definitely recommend that, um, much, much of the information that we're going to be talking about is kind of like a step beyond Mm -hmm. the basics. And so, um, if you need a refresher or if you just want one for fun, go listen to that now. Um, otherwise strap in. Yeah. So maybe, and we didn't outline this before, but it just came into my awareness of just talking about the first three. So we don't lose context Mm -hmm. of this is one paper that we're talking about in multiple episodes. And so there's going to be sort of a disjointed nature, but this is all one line of logical reasoning. Yeah. Reasoning. So um, misconception one was that the reconsolidation process is triggered by the reactivation of a target learning or memory. Um, false. False. <laughs> false. Um, misconception two was that the disruption of reconsolidation is what erases a target learning. False. False. <laughs> There's the theme emerging here. <laughs> Misconception three was that erasure is brought about during the reconsolidation window by a process of extinction. So that link between erasure and extinction, which is that uh, then reconsolidation is an enhancement of extinction. False. False. Caleb gave the verdict again. Yes. False. Which I'm really just... Yeah. I feel like I'm embodying Ecker. So. Yeah. Do you want to like briefly summarize those three of why? Well, yeah, just in very brief. The reconsolidation process is triggered by the reactivation of a target learning memory, learning or memory. That's false because what is activating the reconsolidation process and what is actually deconsolidating the memory network. The is existing a, memory network. Yeah, yeah, is a mismatched experience. What we um, talked about last week was a prediction error mm-hmm. or a relative mismatch experience. Yeah. Um, so it's specific to the person and the system and the brain. Um, but we're looking for the mismatch experience, not just the targeting. You can reactivate and that's not going to trigger the reconsolidation. Yeah. And in fact, can in some ways further augment or perpetuate the negative quote unquote adaptations discovered in the first experience of that learning yeah 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 which goes on to number two which is the disruption of reconsolidation is what erases a target learning and that's not true because it's not the disruption of the reconsolidation process it's actually the in in um instilling a new emotional yeah. learning template that it's the is, utilization of yeah the reconsolidation process yeah, that is a part of the reconsolidation process which is what is going to then erase the target learning mm-hmm. um the third one erasure is brought about during the reconsolidation window by a process of extinction Ooh, this one's tricky remember what's the difference between extinction and erasure competition competition and prioritization yes extinction is just a reprioritizing of another emotional learning mm-hmm. uh, which is er- deemed more contextually viable uh, or positive or adaptive or whatever yeah, yeah likely yeah yeah but it doesn't mean that old network isn't still there right erasure though is um when we've gone in and deconsolidated with a mismatched experience a learning a learning network, a memory. We've instilled a new learning and the memory has reconsolidated, thus erasing the previous network. Yeah. Um, 
I do want to, I was talking to uh, someone this past week um, and it was at uh, a place where I was talking with people that knew what this was. <laughs> um, and this was at the Northwestern. Oh, okay. Um, and they were talking about how it's very important that we have neuroinformed psychotherapy, but we also need to have the posture of this is all symbolic, what the words we're using. Hmm. Perhaps we're getting at actual neurobiological phenomenon, but ultimately it's us trying to make sense of it with our language, which I thought was a really important and to me at the moment, interesting point, because what is the difference between erasure and extinction? Semantics Mm. (laughs) in some way, but in the lived experience neurobiologically, it feels very, very different. Yeah. Extinction, there is still that almost what I would connote as a internal struggle between old ways and new ways. Yeah. Whereas what we're communicating with erasure is that there is not that struggle that the new quote unquote behavior is just naturally emergent Yeah. from the self, which has been reconsolidated to be more in alignment with the way of being mm-hmm. in the world. Yeah. I'm curious what you think of that. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I like what that person is saying. I, I think Anytime you study, you're studying the brain, you know, language is so complex. It's, yeah. it's anytime you say something, you're not saying a lot of things and you are saying a lot of things through connotation. And so I think, yeah, the way we, t- and I, I take this posture with clients, like I literally can't tell you from the emergent processes exactly what's happening. Right. But we do have systems of thought that make sense of yeah help us get symbolically at, yeah the the way your brain is regulating energy and information mm-hmm. and helping that to flow in certain directions and so yeah it would be pointless even for me to talk about specific brain regions to the ends of the earth because you know the Those brain is so arbitrary emergent. yeah in some ways yeah and yeah we we have a high degree of confidence in the meaning we make of those distinctions, but when it comes to their actual boundaries and what happens in the transition between regions, we don't really know. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Well, yeah. What you're talking about is the complexity of what it means to be an emergent complex system. Yeah. How does uh, like the electromagnetic, uh, like activation (laughs) of, yeah, liquid in the brain, result then in my psychological experience like we have no idea right but we know that the two are deeply intimately linked and so we can symbolically represent that in different ways but yeah the the scans that we have show the images that we do that they do because we built them to observe it in that way Yes. Yeah. I think that's a really important like, point. It's it, it's not so much like a camera is when we're looking through a lens that sees what's before it. We know how to detect energy because we've calibrated the machines to be able to observe it in that way. So in so many ways, they're still colored by our symbolic intention yeah. of the image or the scan or whatever it is. Yeah. And I think this is a really... And I, listeners, we will get to the article, but I think this is a really good point to sort of further discuss and digest is, um, you know, with the, the unconscious fantasy of neuroscience is like infinite 
knowledge. Like I can, I can definitively yeah. know the other proof. And one of our hot takes, which is like kind of a hot take, but also like, I mean, it makes total sense. But in <laughs> our training, um, we talk about the intrapsychic. I can never know your intrapsychic world <laughs> completely. There's just no way. Yeah, I'm I can, limited in my dimensional environment. Like yeah. I can't. Yeah. Your one, your brain and nervous system is encapsulated behind skin. I can't physically see it. Right. I, I can feel representations of it through your um, your expressions in the room. Behaviorally. And behaviors and, and yeah. the way your nervous system is firing. I can sort of feel that. But mm -hmm. I can't I can't just like totally know inside your head. Yeah. Or even like inside your body. Right. And so when we're even when we're talking about memory reconsolidation, to avoid the risk of like, oh, I know definitively. And and Ecker holds this posture of like, really the only way you know if memory reconsolidation has happened is later on down the line when After. the network is refired, is there an ease at which this like new learned yeah. um way of being is reactivated yeah an organic emergence yeah 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 and so i mean so many times i walk away from sessions being like i you know i think <laughs> yeah I, I like anticipate that that was what that was but only time will tell i mean let's let's continue to play with like what shows up in our day-to-day -day lives and pay mm -hmm. attention to it because that will show us if it has taken place or not. Yeah. Cause I don't have, I can't scan your brain and yeah. And extinction in that way is such a normal potential that we would in our best of intentions to complete erasure, we would simply suggest extinction yeah. to the observing and sensing self Yeah, to where the narrating is like, uh, yeah. <clears throat> We'll try. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, go ahead, behaving self, put that map away. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll bring it back up later. Right. And yeah. let's try this one on for mm -hmm. now. But we still have that map. Yeah. And I know why we went that way that time. Yeah. That's a callback to IP and B and the three selves. Yeah. Tale of three selves. That's right. Amazing. So today we're going to tackle four, five, and six. So I'm just going to read them here as Ecker summarizes them, and then we can dive into them going back. So number four is that anxiety, phobias, and PTSD are the symptoms that memory reconsolidation could help to dispel in psychotherapy, but more research must be done before it is clear how reconsolidation can be utilized clinically. That was number four. Number five, emotional arousal is inherently necessary for inducing the reconsolidation process. That's number five. Number six is that what is erased in therapy is the negative emotion that became associated with certain event memories. And this negative emotion is erased by inducing positive emotional responses to replace it. So again, we've talked about this in the last episode, a lot of wishfulness mm. in some of these beliefs. Oh yeah. That, oh, it'd be amazing if this was the way or if that this could be the solution we were looking for. Yeah. But that what we know, <clears throat> excuse me, about interpersonal neurobiology is that it's a much more complex process. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I even, as you were reading that feel just sort of a, I don't want to say it's like a weight, but it is a sort of like desire to be very like intentional in communication because mm -hmm. this is getting into like, like really clinical, mm -hmm. like 
potentials of memory reconsolidation and especially things like uh, five emotional arousal is inherently necessary for inducing the reconsolidation process. Like I can see why that would feel as a therapist like it's necessary Mm -hmm. and also like why like there's been the counter reaction to that um because in the waves of psychotherapy we've had both of those we've had the objector objective like non-emotion inducing therapist and we've had the very emotion inducing therapist as kind of clinical waves and so wanting to say like oh this is like what this means like if i'm if i'm reactivation means emotional Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. that makes so much sense but i really want to hold it like tightly as far as like what ecker is really saying because this matters like so much to how we as clinicians enter a room and feel through this process yes and i you know number four i think is a great way um into that idea because you know ecker even talks about in the article that it's really, you know, our focus on these um, fear-based uh, experiences or symptom presentations, such as anxiety, these various phobias we may have, or even the very intense activation present in PTSD, that those are things that we're actively looking for, um, you know, relief from in yeah. psychotherapy, that it would be, you know, so amazing from a wishfulness perspective that we find such a reliable source of relief and symptom cessation Mm -hmm. that they're gone. Um, PTSD being obviously a really um, interesting uh, piece to look at. Like if that's, if, if we can find a cure, so to speak for, for type one PTSD, where we can erase flashbacks, we can erase triggers. We can completely remove one's experience of um, these haunting memories why would we not yeah yeah well and and i love in the first part of this he talks about like fear and how like the implicit learnings like this the okay so let me just read the misconception again so anxiety phobias and ptsd are the symptoms that memory reconsolidation could help to dispel in psychotherapy but more research must be done before it is clear how reconsolidation could be used clinically what he talks about is that like there's the fear mm-hmm. and in phobias, anxiety and PTSD, fear is the thing that we're attacking. Yeah. And he says, yes. And like other works from like, I'm thinking of Gano, mm-hmm. um, Pongsep, even Alan Shore a little bit, like they reference how fear is the greatest inhibitory network in the brain. Mm-hmm. But Ecker is saying like in these, in these pro- in these uh, presentations, anxiety, phobias, and PTSD, we there's just as much emotional learning around things like pleasure or seeking. Yeah, any or, of those primary circuits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think we should talk a little bit. And I know we said we were going to try to save five and six for spinning up on, but I really do feel like four in that way could provide some context for that because just as you said, fear being one of the most one of one of the most inherently um, inhibitory experiences behaviorally and affectively. And I'd love to even just talk a little bit about why that is and why it's really important to have an awareness of that. Um, when you're talking about an invitation to change, because that itself could be fear inducing 
Yeah. And thus inhibitive to your intention and the overall reconsolidative process. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think of, um, where, um, I was just reading, uh, the book from the author, uh, Efret Gano, um, the, uh, neuropsychology of the unconscious. And she does a lot of really good work in laying out how, um, the thalamic basal ganglia <laughs> and, um, amygdala have this very tight working network yeah. that within signals of like potential threat, that fear system is so quick to then inhibit yeah. further firing and activate through the HPA axis and all mm -hmm. the classic traumatology, like understanding yeah. what you're thinking about activation yeah. smoke detector. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's Alarm system. Cult, yeah. All that. Um, and how the, that that's true. Like the fear network is so inhibitory, but that what, what can happen is that those secondary learned processes can then branch out and from a system of fear also create templates for like operant conditioning, mm -hmm. seeking certain rewards, not from a genuine seeking, but from a place of fear avoidance. Mm -hmm. And, and so there's like this huge complexity within the brain of where do these behaviors, like, where are they stemming from? Yeah. What, and that's what memory reconsolidation is seeking is that core of this directionality right. that the brain is seeking. Yeah, if we chase the direction the brain is seeking, we'll only find sort of the the product of the fear. We'll, yeah. we'll really only find sources of fear, yeah. not intrapsychically, but externally, or even imagined in that way, but they're not the actual source of the beginning of this emotional learning and its associated behavioral activation sequence. Yeah, yeah, because the secondary process is like, is coming back around to inform these primary processes over time mm -hmm. and you have a primary process circuit of fear. Mm -hmm. And so the activation of that will then perpetually kind of see itself getting bigger and that affective experience will grow more and more. Mm. But there's so many other potential like emotional learnings connected to that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the hearts of this uh, misconception is that we're not just like targeting the symptoms of anxiety phobias, phobias and ptsd like, right um yes it's fear and it's also like the potential secondary processes that precede fear mm -hmm. and what those processes were seeking or trying to avoid or longing for or desiring and how they're making semantic sense of the experiences that were probably traumatic and then induce a subsequent fear yes so with that you know, when we're talking about these phobia specific treatment intentions of, I want to work on my anxiety. I want to work on, you know, this phobia. I want to work on my PTSD or whatever it is. I think in that there is certainly application possible through coherence therapy methods or through memory reconsolidation. But what this misconceptualization misconception is getting at is that this is not the only application, nor is it, um, the focus being most directly observable in the treatment of these just those three right yeah right because and i really think you do need to go outside of what is traditionally comprised within memory reconsolidation theory um, that we do need to talk about primary affective neuroscience um, and have a conceptualization of that neurosequential dynamic that's all throughout our podcast at this point yeah but i don't know how you would really understand why 
this misconception is the way that it is without that. Yeah. And it's so hard to, I, I wish like listeners could see like a whiteboard that we have because we have the way of drawing the loops, yeah, the, the 50 millisecond loops through primary and secondary processes right. that the brain is doing very rapidly and, yeah. and how those processes are informing, you know, you think of primary processes are homeostatic affects, sensory affects, which is pleasure, pleasurable, displeasurable. And then, um, you have your af emotional affects and, those are jumping up into the secondary processes, mm -hmm. which are then doing this little loop that's 50 milliseconds coming right back and saying, is this pleasurable, displeasurable? Is this hitting right. a homeostatic need? Move Do or I need to refire an emotional affect the same one or fire a different one? Like, how am I making sense of this in these core unconscious parts of the brain? Mm -hmm. And it's hard to describe that without seeing it. Yeah. And that's where I, gosh, I love that we have the callback method within this podcast to yeah. be able to talk about the, you know, the tale of the three selves, because that I think is so spatially contextualizing to the distance that we're really describing in this, you know, audible way hmm. that the communication patterns sure is the difference between 50 milliseconds and 500, yeah. but to the process that is the emergent mind that is 10 reactions to one thought. And so in that you've got, you know, that compounds over time. It's not simple one time. Okay. Now we look at the effects of these 10, uh, you know, these 10 behaviors and the one narrative yeah. that came out of it, it no. compounds sequentially yeah. millisecond to millisecond. So that means you're infinitely complexifying mm -hmm. your activation, both afferently and efferently, as well as the narrative that comes to make sense of it or hold it together. Yeah. As life goes on, that process complexifies into essentially infinity. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're what you're talking about in the callback is we're talking about Perry's memory of fear. We're talking about and his that, whole like oh neurosequential model. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 Um we're also talking about um oh there were a couple others that I was just thinking of. I mean, there's Bromberg and self-states, mm -hmm. the different self-states communicating with each other. Um, oh, there was one other that was just in my head, but it'll come back to me. I'll, Punxeps. I'll yeah, Punxep. Um, But we haven't done specifically a Punxep yeah. episode. Um, but anyway, it'll come to me. Like I say <laughs> to my clients, if it was important in one moment of time, it could be important in another That's moment right. of time. We'll see what we'll the see. present unfolds. Yes. Um, in this Ecker does make the point, and this perhaps could be a transition into the next misconception, but if change is happening, true character logical change, then it is the result of the reconsolidation process. Yeah. And so if you know we see this sort of major shift in the presentation and in even the narrative that is sort of describing the process of being as that person, then we know with a more, you know, a higher degree of accuracy that the reconsolidation process is working now or has been the result, like what we're experiencing has been the result of that reconsolidative process. Yeah. 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 He says it's the only way we know how to make sense of those right. sudden changes in the room or in a person's phenomenological experience of like, I didn't know, you know, we, we know this when a client comes in and just randomly celebrates like, yeah, this thing happened and normally like 
my whole life I've reacted this way. Yeah, totally and different. And this time, like, I didn't. And I didn't even notice it till after. Like, mm-hmm. that's where, okay, the only way we know how to make sense of that is through the plasticity of the brain, those mm. kind of concepts embedded in memory reconsolidation theory. Yes, yes. So then, uh, do you have anything else on four? Nope. Okay. Misconception five, emotional arousal is inherently necessary for inducing the reconsolidation process. So again, the wording very important, emotional arousal as being inherently necessary. Because if you're familiar with reconsolidation process or memory reconsolidation in general, you know the, you've heard the importance placed on emotional affective um, connection. Yeah. I'm trying to be careful with the wording there between yes. the you know initial Im- implicit emotional learning and now what we're hoping to change. So what does it mean that emotional arousal is not inherently necessary for yeah. the reconsolidation process to begin? Yeah. Which is yeah this I don't even know almost where to begin with this one because it has so many tendrils <laughs> yeah, yeah. of like possible like why why is it that we when we start talking about character logical change, we assume emotions have to be present with it. Right. Um, and I get that. I like, that is part of me too. Right. Um, you make that assumption. I make that assumption. Yeah. Yeah, All the time. And, and it's almost like, I mean, obviously like if someone is just pure dissociated in my office, like it's like, okay, that's, that's a tough session. But if they're emotionally expressive, that feels like a better session. But that doesn't mean that we're doing memory reconsolidative work. Uh, that's not always yeah. what's necessary for the network to be reconsolidated. I have perhaps two domains of inquiry into this misconception that may guide our conversation. So what I initially get from that wording is that it means that really only what's approachable through the reconsolidative process is inherently emotional. So affectively experienced is the only thing that can be touched with reconsolidation. That's one of the potential roads that I see Hmm. of just going down the the wrong kind of path because we think that it was emotional in the first place, which studies that he cites that's not true can even be through something as simple as learning to speak differently. Yeah. A motor, pure motor, pure motor, no seeming emotional attachment, which we could argue that there's primary affective experience, which is what led to that, of course, but it's trying to get away from this sense that it's emotional first, which is why it must be emotional now. Mm -hmm. So that's one way. The other, um, is that to change it, it must be emotional regardless of what it is. If it was emotional the first time, that means it has to be emotional now. And that's not inherently true either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The second one to me feels more like an avenue I would like to pursue down. Um, But I'm curious, like in the first one, Mm -hmm. what what do you think, what do you think is there? Well, to me, I see it as, I do need to explain a little bit. So I see it with, from my own intuitive experience as a psychotherapist, what if, I don't perceive my initial learnings as emotional or that they weren't really emotional. I wasn't even really involved. I was just watching a lot. Like I watched my parents interact this way and therefore this is where I get 
the story that explains why I must be this way also. Yeah. That to me is where you really need to pay attention to looking for the, the sense they made of the experience they were in. Yeah. And how it shows up now in narrative form, because it's not necessarily that, Oh, I was looking for trauma and there wasn't one. And I'm looking at that implicitly because of overactivation is what I'm looking for. It's mm-hmm. like, where were they completely overwhelmed without secure attunement? And, you know, there, there was this, um, isolation in suffering. Well, if yeah. you can't find that, does that mean that there's nothing of note there or was it the too little for too long? Um, that was really kind of pointing at the, uh, direction that you now see them at the end of. Yeah. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. Yeah. And how, yeah, I like how, like in that is the ability for story to follow state, to follow story. Yes. And in the reconsolidative process in the emotional learning, like, and Ecker talks about like, so often it's the semantic meanings yeah. in, that are in this, these emotional learnings that are the target of the reconsolidation process. Like we're reconsolidating the network and it's the semantic mm-hmm. in that network that is activating a firing pattern in a certain way. And so we don't always have to tap into the state to retell the story. Yeah. We can get a mismatched story in just accessing the story that is that is kind of reinforming the state that is perpetually augmenting itself over and over again. Right. And that I I want to nuance for mainly the listener, because I think we're on a lot of the same page, but that it's not that we're working top down in that way. We're not just starting with right. the story. Like, okay, just tell me the story and then we can find a mismatch for that or a prediction error of, well, did it go that way every time, you know, of that, that somewhat condescending like to me way of working, but yeah, it, it's in the expression of whatever sort of affective experience they themselves present, such as a dismissive attachment style inherent, like on the face of it doesn't look emotional. It looks emotional. It looks like it has the absence of, and that's where a lot of potentially some of their dissonance interpersonally has come from. I'm thinking of the like cliche. I don't typically get attached to people. I'm not emotional about it. I just don't. Okay. Well, let's like kind of explore, be curious about where that kind of came from. I don't know. I just never really had, you know, that kind of story. Oh yeah. And that's where if you have this misconception that reconsolidation requires inherently an emotional activation. You can beat your head against the wall trying to elicit some type of emotional reaction when in fact that fourth misconception we were just talking about is at the base of this. It's fear inducing to experience emotion. Yeah. Yeah. So don't. That's where that, you know, call back to Crittenden, like to experience that distorted affect is overwhelming. So just omit it. Don't focus on it. So then in that way, when you're, when you're having the intention of reconsolidation to try and elicit emotional reaction is triggering the very defense mechanism that you're trying to change. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we're targeting this. So just, right. So just omit the affect. We're not, we're not targeting the affect. That's so good. Yeah. Ecker often talks about like, what happens after you go through the memory reconsolidation process with an implicit emotional learning network is that on the other side mm-hmm. comes a 
an opening of affective experience, which then emotions begin to kind of be experienced in, in ways that previously were inhibited or just fired in a different way, um, distorted or omitted. Um, and so what, what comes up, it's almost like you've in the target, like targeting of memory reconsolidation. It's like, we're trying to find which key we need to turn in the dam. And then once we've reconsolidated the network, we've turned the key. Mm -hmm. What flows then is the water on the other side, which is the emotions that go into the dry land. Yeah. That actually comes after the reconsolidation process because the brain is reconsolidating the inhibitory or distorting networks, not the affect itself. Yes. I want to read just a section from this, um, this misconception that, that Eckerd describes. He said, if the target learning happens to have emotional components, then it's reactivation or the first of the you know two steps required for deconsolidation. And of course, uh, those processes entail an experience of that emotion. Naturally, target learnings or schemas in psychotherapy usually are emotional. So observable emotion accompanies reactivation and is a key marker of adequate reactivation. However, this emotional arousal is not inherent in the reconsolidation process and is present only because the target learning happens to involve emotional material. Yeah. That's such a tricky, it really is difficult to discern. Like, yes, it's really easy to sit here and talk about it, Yeah, but to feel it in the room and to like, I think that the targeting is like a tricky process and, can this you, is why. Yeah. Can you speak to some of that in your own? Cause I'd love to as well, but I think that that's really helpful is the, the difficulty or the trickiness in discernment interpersonally in the room. Yeah. Well, if I, if I'm integrating everything that we've said, I'm dependent on the neurosequential firing of my client to tell me what they're experiencing, which often involves these secondary <laughs> emotional learnings yeah so like and it's not the client's fault it's their unconscious mind is taking protective survival positive measures mm -hmm. to stay safe and to not like address the things that they have learned emotionally and unconsciously to not address and so one i'm dependent upon those same systems yeah to 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 learn what it is i actually need to target and two i'm like in a space where I can never fully know, I cannot uh, like a hundred percent know exactly the target. Yeah. Like everything that we work with emerges out of the person and is, and is symbolically represented in an inner subjective space. So yeah, I'm not a brain surgeon going in and literally like noticing yeah. the, the networks and Tweaking them myself. Yeah. Electromagnetically highlighting. Yeah. This yeah. is all happening in relationships and I'm activating unconscious mental maps of them. They're activating unconscious mental maps in me. And, you know, I may think, oh man, we really targeted it and we missed it. Mm. I could also think, I don't think we targeted anything. And we actually target something. It's just that I'm human and they're human and we're dependent upon implicit and explicit ways of communicating and making sense together. And yeah. that's just not as abstractly clean yeah. as our cortical language allows us to think it is. Yeah. And desires yeah. It to be. 
I, when we talk about it in this way, like, oh yeah, just find the target. Excuse me? Like, yeah. Yeah. That's very difficult. In the room, that's not. Right. It's not just find the target. Right. It is like, go on a, go dance in a room and yeah. see if you can feel the points of like stuckness. Yeah. One of the ways of thinking that came to my mind as you were talking is new to me. So I want to explore it a little bit, Okay, but it's just a, perhaps just a re, I don't know, uh, sort of re covering that same concept of, you know, if we think about some of the inherent limitations in complete communication interpsychically, that it's just not possible. I have to struggle through symbol after symbol to try and communicate to you what I am actually feeling. And that's all predicated on my felt sense of security and safety in this moment, mm -hmm. which is based on my lived experience of the past. So I'm yeah. inherently struggling to connect with you as a human. Like it takes a ton yes. of intention and attention yes. to really connect. We think then about in psychotherapy, we have a disproportionately activated segment of the population because that's who comes to therapy is wounded mm -hmm. humans. So they likely have experiences of fear that make it even more difficult for them to communicate and connect with the other. So then whatever you're getting from them is at the lower end of the threshold of communicable affective experience. Does that make sense? Yes. Like what's making it out is, is the bare like minimum of what I can communicate to actually share with you because I can't just jump to the whole thing and tell you all of it Yeah, because that would be totally unraveling to my yeah. emotional experience. Dysregulating. And I have many mem mental maps right. that tell me not. Right. So then we as therapists are in just, again, it's not our fault, but we're trying to conceptualize what they shared with me from their minimal threshold expression the wholeness of the story or the completeness yeah. of, Oh, I think I'm making sense of what you're experiencing. To me, it feels like the, all of it because I'm just hearing it now, Yeah. but to you, it's only a fragment and it's, it's colored by just passing through that threshold, not feeling completely safe and in, you know, safe or secure relationship yeah. with the other. Does that, cause I get, I like, I, I have two feelings that come through me when you're talking that way. On the one hand, it's like tremendous awe and the beauty of that we are all complex processes, fellow dancers together. Yeah. Through learning. Invit invitation. Yeah. That's all we got. Yeah. Learning dance and stumbling around. And so as a therapist, that's that's so much relief in the moments where I feel like man, I really want this to just be a cleaner. And like, I don't know, I don't, I feel insecure in this moment. Yeah. Um, and on the other hand, I also feel like this, like, man, I really wish it was cleaner. Yeah. I really wish I, and I'll, I'll say that to clients. Like I wish I had a hundred percent clarity. I really do, but I'm also a human. And so we're going to have sessions where we think we nailed it only to come back the next way next week and kind of laugh and be like, we really thought we nailed it, but we did not. Yeah. So let's like be curious about that. And we'll also have sessions where we say like, oh man, that felt, I don't know, not a lot emerged there. But then 
we realized throughout the week, oh my goodness, like there was so much there. Yeah. And all of the complexity and nuances and different variations of those two stories, but it's just not always as clean. Yeah. I don't know if you've gotten this experience before with a, with a partner in therapy, with a client, like I'll have this experience sometimes where after a session, you know, they'll either text me or maybe at the beginning of that next session, they'll say, I did not like our last session because I don't know what happens, but sometimes when I get in here, it's like, I just forget about what I need to tell you. I forget, which in that there's this experience of whatever is happening in cueing me in this space removes this part of myself that feels capable or able to express need or insecurity or, you know, a desire to, to change. Yeah. And that I don't, I, you know, I don't know what that is in me. And so I want to make sure like, to me, there's a recent memory with a client where they said, so I want to try maybe just starting with what I've gathered from this past week that I want to talk about, like just naming it yeah, instead of trying to let it unfold mm. in conversation. Um, but that to me gets at what we're talking about, that something about the limitations of interpersonal connection, which is a strange way of thinking <laughs> that that's actually where all the potential is. But some of the limitations are the fogginess that sets in yeah. when we come into contact with our, with each other, which is actually ourselves and the virtual others that yeah. we have. Yeah. Well, and this is to me, like, this is why we've been so excited about the unconscious mind and all of the primary secondary processes that have um that we're learning about in like all of like science current yeah. neuroscience neuropsychoanalysis like, yeah. yeah yeah just like that those enactments in which it feels like i that because that's even a predictionary like i thought i thought we were there in one way and we're, we we didn't get there and yeah i didn't get there and we didn't get there and the thing didn't happen and that is like cueing potential discovery and exploration of an unconscious process, hmm. a potential self-state, um, a potential emotional learning secondary process that needs to be like allowed space to emerge into the explicit realm of our discussion. Yeah. And I, I think I have that same posture that you have where my gut is like, dang it. But then when I sit with it for a little bit, it's like, oh, actually it's in, it's in the struggle or the lack that the possibility actually is like, that's what, if I can connect to that and we can hold on to that, what will emerge is actually what we desire yeah. to emerge. This is so fascinating. I love that we've kind of stumbled into this conversation because to me, we, this is what really I don't know. This is what to me captures the mystery of this work as psychotherapists, mm -hmm. because it's not a sure thing. And it's not even a, it's not, it's not even a, a really like clear process at all. No. And we can through objectivity, try and make it appear that way and say, Oh no, you know, this is the step. This is the phase that we're in. This is the, what I'm getting in my conceptualization of the person. And so here's the treatment modality that I want to pair. We try to, to sort of press into it, this usurped structure. Yeah. But this is encounter. 
and this is something I've been covering with my consultees recently, that we're making all of this up right now, sitting yeah. as therapist and client. We're, we're making it up. Like you agree to pay me for this and I agree to perform the roles that I was trained to do. But anthropologically, what we're doing right now is so much more ancient and mysterious and committed than the objective roles that I've agreed to perform that you've agreed to receive. This is unconscious meets unconscious. Yeah. And we're just like almost like Harry Potter, just like dueling with each other. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's that, yeah. And this is the misconception that made us. I mean, we didn't know this. I mean, I had, we had read this for like a while ago, but yeah. like it, it fits so well into the puzzle of my mind, which is why we desired to make a case conceptualization like framework model yeah. Yeah. is because like, I love that idea of in, uh, encounter and engagement. I encounter so many people, mm -hmm. but do I engage them? as subjects i could encounter them and try to push us into the journey of well we have to get emotional release we have to talk about um incongruent beliefs we have to talk about this we have to do this we have to go there we have to do this um and it's like but what we're learning in neuroscience and and uh, and all of the wealth there is that every subjective human like may need something different at different times. Mm -hmm. I have clients that what they needed six months ago is our session rhythm is dramatically different mm -hmm. to now. And I've had to update my conceptualization of what that room, what the, in, what, how I engage with the encounter that is in that room different six months ago to now. Mm -hmm. And if I try to go back six months ago and say like, this is what we need to keep doing. That's not what they need. No. And so case conceptualization is a way of saying when is it that emotional arousal is a part of the reconsolidation process I love that. but when is it not and how can we make sense of it and how can we notice maybe the the mismatched versus just the misattuned yeah and oh. like all of those different nuances like that's why we're so passionate about case conceptualizing yeah and also why it's probably so easy for me to have like a quote unquote easy session where we just talk about kind of the basics of life and maybe yeah. do a little bit about like, you know, let's just talk about like, um, limits and setting mm -hmm. limits in your life yeah. and what's going on at your job right health now. And yeah. 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 And walking away and being like, Oh yeah, that's good. But then not taking the time to say, what actually did I encounter in this session? And Can did I actually engage? engage it? Yeah. Um, and yeah. not just encounter. Yeah. This to me brings this quote from, the end of this section, Ecker says, thus conscious subjective awareness and attention appear to function as the arena where separate differing schemas can come into mutual contact and undergo a combined semantic evaluation yeah. that allows for a revision of one schema by the other through the reconsolidation process. Hmm. That's subjective awareness and attention. Yeah. That awareness being the multiple levels of meaning from like Edtronic's work. Yeah. Awareness is still making meaning. Yes. It's just unconscious. Right. Attention is that, that efferent process of the cortical mm -hmm. zones, the <laughs> prefrontal cortex, orbital frontal cortex, connecting with the awareness of the deep subject to then 
create a nuanced meaning. Yeah. That's that's beautiful. Beautiful. To me. Do you have time for number six? I do have time for number six. Okay. Do you? I do. Okay. I do. Um, I actually just got a text from a client that said, uh, hey, can we push it back? Yes. So it's like, well, of thank course. you. Yes. <laughs> we needed more time. Yeah. So that's amazing. Yeah. Uh, just for you guys as listeners, we are humans and we work around we try our to schedule. podcast times. <laughs> so We try to schedule things, but uh, yeah. it doesn't always happen. It doesn't always happen. It's like we ourselves are complex processes. Caleb. I know. Come I'm on. getting a little I too crazy here. So. I don't think Speaking so. of emergent processes, Page let's 29. go to misconception six, which is what is erased in therapy is the negative emotion that became associated with certain event memories. And this negative emotion is erased by inducing positive or neutral emotional responses to replace it. What do you, Bridger, you have a lot of somatic mm. cues yeah. with that one. Yeah. And the listeners can't see it, but I see it. Yes. And so I'm curious what, when you heard me read that, what was coming up? To me, it's a misunderstanding of really how memory works, of how the brain functions in our interpersonal and intrapersonal experience and really what our goal is in therapy. So to me, this misconception is indicative of some of the systemic misunderstandings of the field of psychotherapy and we, culture. Yeah. The field, especially in the West comes out of the culture. Yes, exactly. So we're looking at fingerprints that are very old here. But to me, I think you could make a strong case for it stemming back to hedonism, like avoid the the pain, yeah. avoid the negative mm-hmm. and seek the neutral at the very least, but definitely the positive the if positive. you can. Because it's not about the negative emotion. There's no such thing as a good or bad emotion. We culturally contextualize it as such, but to call the negative ones things that you should avoid, like anger or sadness or grief, um, that those are the, those are the culprits of your stuckness or of your perturbedness, um, your, your specific way of being stuck in the past, then that to me is you're, you've, we've lost, like we've missed the point of this entire mm-hmm. engagement together as, as person in person, we've lost it. Yeah. Yeah. The, the one that comes to my mind with clients often is the inhibitory, um, functions around crying mm-hmm. of the emotional, implicit emotional learnings about like how crying feels socially. Like it doesn't feel good. It makes other people feel burdened all, you know, you can story, story, story around crying. And what often emerges is if there's the presence of that, that affect Mm. and we can sit with it, we discover that the primary process of um, sensory input is actually the crying on the back end of a genuine cry is a pleasurable sensation. Yeah. It's release. Yeah. It, yeah. But our secondary processes inhibit that. And so we never come back to the primary process of, Oh my, it, this actually felt good. This to me is where I want to go back to our conversation about Poncep's treatment of shame. Do you remember this? Yes. When we were talking about this because this gets at some of that tension. I feel like, we were talking about shame, disgust. Right. Which is, yeah, which we're, uh, sorry, I'm having trouble contextualizing that conversation. We were talking about the primary processes. I think it was actually for, is it for moat? 
No, it was from, I mean, we did a mode on it, but oh, okay. it was from this episode. We talked about the disgust response. Yes. And how yeah. shame is potentially an evolved secondary yeah. process. Yeah. Secondary from, tertiary. Yeah. yeah somewhere right. in that zone. But this is where, you know, when we t- start talking about the negative emotion, shame was the first one that came up which is like, you don't want to feel shame and you don't want your clients to feel shame. So let's get out of that shame as quickly as we can. That that's such a, again, a wishful desire and intention as a therapist. I don't want my client to suffer and I don't want them, you know, I want them to know that I don't see them that way at all and that they are not that way inherently, that they've learned to describe themselves that way based on how they've been treated. But in that, in in that energy, we, we may rush in and try and rescue from that negative emotion yeah Yeah. even with such sophisticated methodologies as reconsolidation Mm -hmm. we may go in and target shame when really shame is just an emergent process from what actually happened the target learning yeah 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 and wanting to be more in line with the target learning Mm -hmm. and that's if shame is the secondary process let's target it Mm -hmm. but if it's a tertiary process if it if there's something more core to why there's the, I love the language of distortion or omission yeah. um, from Crendon. And like, if there's mo- something more court as to what that emotional learning network, why it's omitting or distorting, mm-hmm. then then we target that, yeah. whether it's shame or not. Yeah. This is really what gets at, to me, helping me understand where Ponkset may have been coming from and determining that it's not a primary circuit that it is secondary because it's dependent on the reflected appraisal of the self, not on the self's experience of itself inherently. Yeah. 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 So yeah. 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 You can't, you can't um, inherently activate a shame response primarily. Yes. It's dependent on primary processes to activate a shame response. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And in that what secondary we call a shame response, right, right. In that secondary and tertiary efferent expression intrapsychically that's really what we're getting at with shame it takes the it takes that loop Mm -hmm. it couldn't exist on its own um so with that you know that what is erased in therapy is the negative emotion that became associated with certain event memories that as a misconception i think is really really important especially if we're dealing with trauma where there are so many stories of pain which are littered with what I think culturally we describe as negative emotions and even neurobiologically or affectively describe as negative emotions with these sadness, grief, uh, fear, loss, those types of emotional experiences, those are not necessarily to be changed or erased. Yeah. In fact, it's, that's not really possible. Yeah. 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 He talks about another um, set of researchers who, coined the 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 phrasing changing emotion with emotion Mm -hmm. and how psychotherapy is supposed to utilize reconsolidation he says it's actually not so much changing emotion for emotion or with another emotion rather it's changing old model with a new model and as that as a phenomenological experience in therapy emotions then change as a derivative effect of these change changes in a semantic structure So, and semantic structures, meaning the models, rules, and meanings that are attributed to the sensory experience. Yeah. That's to me, again, just validates Ponksep of this is why we don't talk about them as emotions, why they're affects, because those emotions can change. 
as derivative effect, as an emergent result of. But in themselves, these primary affects are perceptive, you know, collection of stimuli and subsequent activation through the seeking circuit. They're not based on inherently, uh, they're not based on connections between another set of circuits that then creates that. It, it, it takes that secondary tertiary reafferentation to even tell them how to interpret reality. Yeah. They themselves were going to pick up what they do from stimuli. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I love, I love that idea that emotions then change as a derivative effect. That and language is so amazing. Yeah. To me, that makes so much sense with Punxup's primary, secondary, tertiary processes of, you know, primary processes activate then in the unconscious mind, secondary, either omitting or distorting processes in the basal ganglia, the thalamus, um, which then interact with the emotional regions of the limbic brain, which then produce maybe emotional behaviors. But the secondary process in and of itself, I'm not just trying to take the activation of that secondary template mm -hmm. and say, well, if you activate that template, but you feel calm rather than distressed, then you'll be okay. And vice versa. If I get you to activate that template and then I get you to feel dysregulated or distressed, that's not also going to change that template inherently. Mm. It may mean that that model, that template, that secondary process doesn't need it, which is back to um, misconception five. Maybe it doesn't need the emotional activation to be reconsolidated, to have a mismatch and a new learning. Yeah. And I think this one also circles back to four when he goes on to talk about you know, the fear of fear. This is the example that, that, that he gave where it's just one um, expression of this sort of really recurrent problem in our uh, limitations as therapists on the outside of someone's interpsychic process. We see the phobia, the fear mm. of fear. Um, he describes a scenario in which somebody is afraid of being stung by a bee, so they instead are afraid of bees. No, you're really afraid of that time where you either were stung or were afraid you were going to be stung. And so you've just labeled the category of B uh, schematically as something to be avoided at all costs. Yeah. Um, maybe you have an allergy that you know of. And so you watch somebody else be very afraid for you that you could be stung by a bee because of the certain consequences that may befall you. But ultimately, it's not the thing itself, it's the fear of that thing that yeah. is really the perpetuant of the phobia yeah yeah they give another really good example of a of a client who is in therapy and is expressing some kind of depressive um, symptoms some um what i would probably call shame <laughs> um and they do some kind of floating back they don't use that language but some kind of drawing it back to a time in which this client had a unplanned pregnancy that then led to yeah. an abortion. And in that moment, the secondary process that was attributed semantically to that episodic memory of getting an abortion was that my life as a woman was going to be ruined and I would never be happy. Yeah. I think in a marriage again. Yep. And so notice like that has a unconscious like impact on the organization of her mind and what the uh what ecker talks about is what 
what had to take place is the reactivation of that network to go back to that episodic memory mm-hmm. and to cue, to target the, well, I will never be happy again. I will never, I will never be a mom, a good mom and whatever the specific emotional learning was mm. to target that. And then he says that all I asked her to do was to say it again and to sit with it. And it wasn't that she became super dysregulated. It was that her brain had then chronologically like re-entered the present moment. Yeah. And the mismatch experience was her brain remembering, I am married, I do have kids, which then deconsolidated, reconsolidated that Mm -hmm. network. So then she didn't have the ongoing shame um, response, shame responses that felt very unexplicitly made sense of mm-hmm. like she didn't have a, a representation of why she felt that way but she had to go back and see where it was coming from and then to contextualize that then and also bring it into the present and then let the brain do its emergent processes that associate and connect mm-hmm. and integrate and then reconsolidate that network yes i think that's fantastic um I'm wondering what it is for you, um, what some of this practically means in your sort of embodied experience as a therapist. Hmm. That's, yeah. I think that's part of like why I want to do this article so like slowly, so slowly and also like be very fine in like what is being said, what's not being said. Hmm. Um, and also have that long discussion about it's not simple. Like none of this is just like, okay, now you know it, go do it. All right. I think this gives me a posture of orientation towards what is it that we really need to shift our attention to and what is your being the client system really trying to be aware of. Mm-hmm. I love that, like that he differenti- differentiates between subjective awareness and attention. Oh. And I think for me, I, I, I notice when there's like in the space, a sort of disformulation mm-hmm. of experience where the brain is doing some emitting or distorting some fragmenting of some sort of a primary process of, I have a need, I have, I have an affect, but I'm disformulating that. Yeah, I can feel that in the room. What memory reconsolidation feels very grounding in is that then the dance of where does that, where, what's the model for that? Mm. Where does that come from? Is it in you? Is it a, is it in a simulation model that you have from somebody else? Like, where do we find this? It's what you said many times in this podcast of finding the present in the past. Mm-hmm. Where does this model emerge? And then how can we mismatch it? How can we... This is where Dan Siegel's idea of emergent processes in therapy really feels so important is because I, I feel like once we find that implicit emotional learning of where the brain starts to let go, break apart or hide, Mm -hmm. those are all like very specific words I use in therapy. Once we can do that, then we can bring all the other states that are present of like safety, grounding, all of that to provide mismatch experience. And I'm doing that in my body as well. Then just the act of holding those, the brain will 
emerge yeah. into a new semantic representation of the past. And then you're really honestly changing the past. And that's where. Yeah. We can time travel. Yeah. Practically it comes in that, that moment of trying to find the target of letting go, dropping, fragmenting, splitting, mm. uh, any of those words, finding that moment and then what's the mismatch? Mm-hmm. What does your brain need to know to be able to say that was then, this is now, and it's okay that that was, and it's okay that this is now. Yeah. What emerges is a sort of complexification, mm-hmm. a sort of dispelling of the ghosts yeah. that are haunting the present to, to finish that business in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I'm noticing even as I talk about it, I can't help but be very metaphorical because the imagery yeah like it's almost like the pendulum swings like memory reconsolidation wording is so f- fine and granular gra- in some yeah, ways. granular and like specific and and categorical almost yeah that it catapults you yeah and then it it has to throw me into like right okay on the other side i have to counterbalance that with this sort of like yeah metaphorical myth kind of orientation of yeah i have to talk about it in a very complex way because it is complex even though the language is very simple yeah Um, yeah what about for you practically for me it confronts me with the unavoidable importance of intersubjectivity Mm. you know it i think sometimes there's this perception that i get of psychotherapy in this process that we're kind of inviting one another into that is is co-facilitated but is ultimately individualized it's Mm. your work we're we're here for you as the client totally agree 100 percent. but in that i am intimately involved in this and you are you are responding in the cues that i'm and that we are presenting to you in this moment. So while we're talking about this moment in time that we floated back to, or this even experience in the present that we're assessing the virtual others that are rampantly haunting the space, it is so contextualized to this moment in time with you and me. That's why we get to talk in this way about these things. That's why our body and mind are are experiencing the things that they are as we're going back through this memory, which may not ever happen again in this way. We may not experience going back to this memory ever again in this way because it wasn't in the same context. Mm-hmm. I wasn't with you then yeah, as I am now. And in that, my body is opening up an entirely different set of sensory experiences, of memories, of fears, <laughs> of hopes of dreams of desires of potentials we we don't know that power on the surface i think it's just yeah we have this culturally objectified relationship and here's what we're here to do but again because of our human evolution that tells a much different story about what it's like for one human to encounter another and intentionally engage with them on the intrapsychic reorganizing of their mind hmm. And that I think is just what this work really, again, just confronts me with that what my clients are doing, what I am doing in meeting with them and they with me is so 
just full of implications mm. and true depths of experience. Like it's a black hole <laughs> like, yeah. that we're really kind of sitting on the horizon of and just yeah. kind of staring in. Yeah. I mean, essentially what you're talking about is the mismatch relativity of memory reconsolidation, like, mm-hmm. that it's so contextualized yeah. in the present moment with the person like it's different every client yeah and with you with us i would i would say like mm-hmm. w- it would be interesting and there's no way to do this again to me in my mind with the limitations of being a human that cues a different response but if you and i were to work with the same person and have stumbled onto the same memory and worked to essentially mismatch with the same prediction error that wouldn't happen Mm-mm you bring up something different than I do. Yeah. And they bring up something different in me than they do in you. Yeah. And so even discovering that mismatched relativity principle together would be different. Yeah. 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 Which in our training SIP2, we talk so much about sensory motor affective process units and the so bajillion of those that go <laughs> yes. into like rigs and <laughs> rigs representations of interactions that become generalized yeah. into work, internal working models into yeah. core beliefs of and the world yeah our spheres of encounter yep yeah but it's so complex yeah i mean we, and have we take it for granted days of yeah. work in it yeah yeah i'm noticing like we present in memory reconsolidation as such a beautiful clean thing in the primer Yep. And now it's almost like we're bait and switch ripping, <laughs> ripping it apart. <laughs> and I hope listeners are um able to hold kind of the dual awareness mm. in that and to say yes, it is like this beautiful lighthouse almost. Right. And also like it doesn't mean that it doesn't get subsumed by fog and clouds and it's rain. Murky. Yeah. Weather still happens to a lighthouse. That's right. <laughs> and so I can miss the lighthouse sometimes, even if I know all of the language of memory reconsolidation, all of the ideas, I can still miss it. Every map, that lighthouse is there. Yeah. I mean, at the coordinates, it's supposed to be right here. Yeah. Well, it's hard to see. Yeah. I can still miss it. Yeah. Yep. That's beautiful. Well, thank you for listening. Thank you, Caleb, for engaging. Ugh always so happy in these times yes it really is so special um but yes thank you all for listening and we've got another week at least maybe two hold your horses <laughs> depends <laughs> depends how we're feeling if we are as talkative next week yeah. as we are this week that's then, right yeah. yeah so we've got another week in this uh, article at least and so we're gonna take on seven eight and nine next week um and see what comes of it see what emerges that's right in this complex process that we are together in. Yes. Yeah. Thank you guys for listening. Take care. We hope that you've enjoyed this podcast episode and that it will help you stay curious and create community around discussing the research that matters most to clinicians and researchers. If you're curious to learn more about something you heard today, check out our website at www.beyondhealingcenter.com and go to the Trainings tab for more information on our upcoming case conceptualization trainings and community events. You can also contact us by emailing trainings at beyondhealingcenter.com. If you want to stay connected, please subscribe to this podcast for more episodes. 
leave us a review, and follow us on social media by searching the Evidence-Based Therapist Podcast. This podcast is a project of Beyond Healing Media, a media creation group committed to creativity, community, and embracing the beauty of being human. If you like this podcast, you might also like the other podcasts of Beyond Healing Media. Notice That is an EMDR podcast hosted by Emdria-approved consultants and trainers who use EMDR in their practice. Beyond Trauma is an educational podcast on the journey of trauma therapy and what it means to be humans who have been hurt but are learning to recover and grow, living the life we all want of safety and connection. The Burnout Educator is an interview-style podcast that invites stories from people across the spectrum of the educational system and seeks to see the human inside the role they play. It is our desire that you see parts of your story and those around you in the stories you hear. If you enjoy what you hear on these episodes and are interested in speaking with one of us at Beyond Healing Institute, we would love for you to reach out about our consultation opportunities. Of all the many things that we do, Consultation is one of the things that we enjoy most. We love supporting other clinicians in conceptualizing their cases from a neurobiological and nervous system-informed perspective. We offer individual and group consultation for somatic integration and processing, as well as for EMDR therapy. Individual consultation is a great way to get personal time to reflect on your cases and how you and your work influence one another. Group consultation offers so many opportunities for learning and connection with other like-minded clinicians. Our greatest mission at Beyond Healing Institute is to offer opportunities for professional development and create a supportive community in the field of mental health. Beyond Healing Institute is excited to announce that we're moving. Okay, well, we're not moving our building, but we're moving our trainings, continuing education resources, and community events to Canvas. This will help you as a member of the community to stay in contact with other members of the Beyond Healing community, while also providing a platform that brings consistency and convenience to all of our trainings and course offerings. Canvas is an online learning management system that will be your home base for all things Beyond Healing, as well as a virtual campus that will house all of our trainings and continuing education resources. We're so excited to invite you to our virtual campus on Canvas and we hope to see you there soon.